Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The prison guard shut the iron door behind me. Welcome to my world, where my dad thinks of nothing but bluegrass, bluegrass, and bluegrass. Howdy folks, and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. Before I get into the topic for today, and it's going to be a a Looney Tunes type of show, but before I get into that, I want to remind everyone of the new mobile edition of Jam Session Survival. So if, if you've had the old one, and thousands of people have the old version, which is a PDF which contains the chord progressions, sometimes in multiple keys, to the 100 most popular bluegrass jam session tunes. And this thing, let me tell you, can save you at a jam session. You know, if if you're completely lost and, gosh, you just wish you knew the chords to that song they're playing, it might be in that book. Because I used to go around a lot of jam sessions and I started writing all the tunes down. And then for one for a student of mine, I put him together a little list of 10 songs because he wanted to start, you know, going to a couple of jams and stuff. So I wrote him out, you know, the chords to Old Home Place and Blue Ridge Cabin Home and John Hardy and Cripple Creek and stuff like that. And I made him this little one-page sheet. So he took it to the jam session and he came back the next week and he's like, this thing is great. The only problem is... They were playing a whole bunch of songs that weren't on this little sheet here. So I expanded it and, and I went with him to a couple of jam sessions and wrote down all the tunes and all the keys and just kind of hung out with him and helped him figure it out. I'd, I'd whisper to him what the chords were. You know, instead of doing a lesson that week, I just said, instead of the lesson, let's just go to the jam on Thursday night and we'll call that the lesson. So this thing grew over time and I started giving, you know, printing it out and, you know, stapling four pages together and giving it to my students and stuff like that. And this thing just kept hanging around and growing somewhat over time until the internet age hit us and I decided to turn it into a PDF ebook. And so out came the original version of Jam Session Survival, which was 50 tunes. And then I upped it to 100 tunes. And uh, trust me, I'm not getting rich off this thing. You know, we, while I have sold thousands of copies, you know, when you're when you're selling something for five bucks, you know, it's uh, you're a long way from salting away your retirement fund. But anyway, I feel like I'm doing a service not only to the newbies and the beginners, but to people who are at a jam session and there's this guy next to them who keeps hitting the wrong chords. You know, if you have that jam session survival book, you can print it out and carry it around with you. Even if you don't need it, you might hand it to someone who does and they'll go, Oh man, thanks. This is great. So, uh, Sally Gooden is what now? A, 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 E, A. Oh, wow. That's not so hard. I think I could do that. So you're doing a service to yourself too, even if you don't need it because you cart it around and you give it to those guys and gals who are playing the wrong chords. And another uh, thing it's useful for is that if you venture into the jamming world, 
and they look at you and say, what do you want to play? Just call out one of those tunes in that book because anybody that's been playing bluegrass for, you know, a couple of years, they're going to know those tunes. So that guarantees you'll have the chords to the song that they're about to play. Anyway, I don't mean to make this episode a big sales pitch for jam session survival, but if you, if you are currently using it, I just want you to know that I have the mobile edition now, which is, has been completely reformatted one song per page instead of the original two songs per page. And it's in a vertical format. It works great on, on smartphones and tablets. So just check that out. You can go to bradleylaird.com slash survival and both versions are still available. So anyway, since that project has been in the work so long, I feel obligated to mention it again here. And, you know, for less than the price of a set of strings, you'll have it. And uh, you can carry it around in your phone and use it when required, either to help yourself or to help that struggling jammer sitting next to you in that chair who keeps hitting an A minor when it's supposed to be a B minor. Okay, enough about the jam session survival. Uh, I'll also put a link to it on the show notes page. All right, today what I want to talk about is sometimes uh, the behind-the-scenes stories in bluegrass. I get a kick out of uh, Tim Shelton's podcast. If uh, I mentioned his podcast in that episode I did where I talked about 20 different podcasts or so that, that I listen to. So I listened to Tim Shelton's show, you know, pretty much all of them. If he gets into... Uh, I don't even know what you call that fighting that, you know, like cage fighting and all that stuff. You get to talk about that. Sometimes I'll fast forward a little bit cause I'm just not into that. But, uh, whenever he's telling, um, you know, stories of bluegrass or interviewing bluegrass people or just, you know, it's a pretty cool show, but he's been, uh, you know, I guess he's maybe done about eight or 10 of these where he tells what he calls a crazy bluegrass story. And some of them are pretty good. And, and they're, they're that kind of behind the scenes look at the, uh, the, uh, the true life of your bluegrass stars and performers. Cause you know, from the audience's point of view, they don't see all this stuff, but you know, as soon as you get behind the curtain or, you know, behind the scenes where the public doesn't see it, what you'll find out is these are regular folks, you know, and they do all the regular weird stuff that everybody else does. And some of the stories are kind of comical because of the, I don't know if you call it irony or the, the contrast between what your image of someone is and what the reality of someone is. You know, I've talked before about how, you know, the biggest stars in the world, they put their pants on one leg at a time. So anyway, I just thought I'd tell you a couple little quickie stories about some weird stuff that has occurred and uh, along the way in my 40 years of playing bluegrass music. My daddy's crustier than Bill Monroe's butt. <laughs> For many bluegrass musicians, the, and, and let's face it, the majority of bluegrass musicians are not going to become world-class stars of the bluegrass music world and be accepting their awards at IBMA. Most people who start out will never reach that, that pinnacle of achievement. And I'm not taking anything away from that 
those peaks of, you know, up on the mountaintop of the, the great musicians and performers. But most of us are just regular folks, you know, and, and they are too, but they just happen to go a little farther along that path for, for a variety of reasons, some of which involves talent and some of which involves self-promotion and some of it involves luck and some of it involves, you know, there's a lot of ways that people climb to the top of the ladder or, you know, become world renowned professionals. But the truth is most of us will never achieve that. You know, the average person is lucky to stick with it long enough to learn to play pretty decent, you know, like decent and maybe, you know, have some pickings and do some jamming and go to festivals and, you know, just feel good about their playing, but they, you know, not even maybe never even get on a stage, maybe be asked occasionally to do a little something, you know, a little backyard party. Hey, why don't, why don't you and Bill get, get your stuff? Why don't y'all come over and pick, you know, that may be the, the peak of, for some people. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Gosh, if, if it weren't for the 98% of the people who, who achieve that kind of level of excellence and, you know, notoriety and things like that, there, there wouldn't even be a bluegrass tribe. I mean, bluegrass is made up of many of your listeners. When you go play a gig and you look out in the audience, half the audience, they play. They may not play very good, or they may just have an instrument, but bluegrass is populated by people who, who pick even just a little bit. Sometimes all they have is like a dulcimer and they, it's hanging on the wall and they occasionally pick it, pick it up and strum it a little bit. But you know, it's bluegrass is made up of this scale that runs from people who just fool around with it. Some just, you know, it's relaxing. It's a hobby and all that. And then some of them put bands together and they're, they're, you know, bands of every caliber of every quality level. You got some bands that are pretty funky and that's good too. And then you got bands that are a little better and a little better. And then some of them start, you know, making inroads into selling it as entertainment, as a product, you know, playing little local, little local gigs, you know, maybe we should make a CD and, you know, this thing grows until you have the crop of the local bands who are, you know, trying to make it, but maybe they're just trying to make it locally because they got day jobs. They get kids in school. You know, they're not going to take off and go, you know, uh, you know, play 150 days a year out on the road. They're just not going to do that. Some, you know, some people can, and those that can automatically, you know, get into that other group because it doesn't matter how good of a musician you are. If you can't travel, you're not going to be a professional, you know, top tier bluegrass performer because they all travel. You know, you, you can't do like Steely Dan and just, you know, record stuff, you know, in the studio and put it out and never tour. Bluegrass is a touring profession for, for the upper tier. But then there's this within your local region. There are a lot of bands and they're, they're all getting offers to play little barbecues and picnics and company picnics and church picnics and little city festivals and, you know, the peanut festival and the corn dog arama and the 
you know, this just goes on and on and on. And they start playing these gigs and they got private parties and, you know, Delta pilots retirement party and wedding rehearsal dinners and all this stuff. And you start getting bands that have, are beginning to really put together shows that rival the quality of professional touring bluegrass musicians. And one of the things I've always thought was sort of the, the pinnacle of achievement in terms of a local regional band who is pr playing professionally but part-time is the opening act gig. It's sort of like you, if you get an opening act gig for a major, you know, touring star, it sort of says something about a, the quality of your show you know, the stage worthiness of it, your ability to entertain and, and play and sing well, it says something. That's the feather in your cap if you've, if you've been asked to do that because the promoters who are putting on these shows, the people who are hiring, you know, David Grisman and Chris Thiele and Del McCurry and Steve Earle or whoever may not always be bluegrass, but these people they don't want, you know, duffers and hacks up there on the stage as the opening act. So they tend to cherry pick from the locally available cheap acts that are available who mesh well with the, you know, the band that they're, they're envisioning putting them on, on stage with. So if you're a local band and you have managed to snare some of these opening act gigs, that may be the high point of your career. And well-deserved, because if you can't travel, that may be as far as you can go. But, you know, if, um, let, let's say, I'm going back back in the 80s now, but let's say Newgrass Revival was playing in town, and you bought a ticket and went to the show, and there was a band opening for them, and you're sitting in the audience, and you go, I know those guys. I know every one of them guys. Man. And they're up there opening for Newgrass. That's, that's Wow. What are they doing that I'm not doing? You know that our little group isn't doing. So it's it is a it, it is an achievement, and it's something that that you will as a local player that may be the closest you ever get to the big time. And and by the way, I'll also mention festivals. If you if your local regional part time professional group is booked at a festival and there are also the touring national acts and the you know larger regional groups like there are groups that just play in the southeast and then there are groups that play all over the world you know and your your group may only play in a 10 county area around you know where you live because you just can't travel and you get booked with them and there's your picture on the flyer you're on the schedule you go on after so-and-so and come on right before so-and-so and that well could be the pinnacle of what you're able to do because of the constraints on your you know in your personal life and things like that but a lot of these bands are very good very good and so anyway this whole opening act thing i will tell you it has its upsides and downsides um, I've been in a couple of bands who did a good bit of this stuff back in the eighties because we had clawed our way to the top of the heap in the local scene. 
you know, by just putting the effort into it, the same kind of effort that a professional band would put into their show and their, you know, their rehearsal methods and all this kind of stuff. But you can only take it so far when you're limited by, yeah, but on Monday I gotta, I gotta be at work, you know? So we would get these opening act gigs and your, your, you know, all the people that you knew in town, they would come out to these shows and they would see you up there on the marquee. You know, there's your name. I'm like, wow, these, these guys are the top of the heap locally. But even though you're, you're in smaller letters under the big stars name, you know, like it says up there, Earl Scruggs review in like 10 inch letters. And then under it in six inch letters, it says with Cedar Hill, you know, that was us. But, you know, as a local musician, regional, local type musician, that's a big deal. I have photos, you know, in my photo album where I've looked up at that thing and said, man, I got to take a picture of that. That's pretty cool. Because it is a cool thing. And, you know, when I said 98%, it's probably a larger number than that, will never achieve full-time professional touring bluegrass musician status. You know, if you if you notch that scale down to the to the local to the region that you're in, maybe you're in Austin or San Francisco or I don't care where you are, you know, there's a there's a boundary for your local region due to work commitments and things like that. And when you are opening for these, you know, traveling bands, you're pretty much the top of the heap. That's the good side. It feels really good to be asked and to, when you walk into one of those shows, you've got an audience that is primed and ready. They're paying good money to get in there for a ticket. I mean, they may, let's say the tickets are $25 and you've got 500 people in an, in a theater or auditorium or something like that. And the lights are dim and the lights come up and it's you on stage, they will treat you differently than they do. If they see your band, you know, picking at a little, uh, I don't know, like somebody's having a, a barbecue, uh, you know, like a fundraiser for an elementary school and they hire a bluegrass band and they put you under a 10 by 10 out in the middle of a, an asphalt parking lot. And there's kids running around all over the place and they're, you know, and they, they're paying you 800 bucks or something, you know, probably not that much. Let's say 400 bucks to be there and play for a couple hours. Maybe you're, you're the entertainment at the end of a, of a, of a 4k fun run to raise money for the whatever association, you know, you get those kind of gigs. And when you pack up and go home, there were probably maybe a dozen people who even looked your way and paid attention to anything because there's so much stuff going on. But when you walk on stage as an opening act and there's 500 people in there, 490 of them are watching you and listening. And they, they're already of the mindset that I'm here to hear good music and these guys are on the bill. They must be good. So they're with you. They're supportive. And the other good thing about opening act gigs is you know, if you're one of those local regional bands and 
that that type of band I'm talking about that occasionally gets these opportunities to, to be an opening act for a for a national touring act is that your show is pretty short. You know, the headliner he might play for two hours. They're probably going to give you forty minutes, approximately. So it's it's actually easier to come out there and line up 40 minutes worth of your best stuff and really just put it on them. Any tune that is sort of like, I don't know about that. We're not doing that. We're going to do our showstoppers. You know, we're going to do the, we're going to do the hits. We're going to do the stuff that through experience, we know really knocks them dead. And of course that that's a good, good side because you don't have to, you don't have to have four hours of stuff like you do when you play in the bar scene. If you're playing the bars, you better have four sets because maybe five back in the old days, they used to keep you there till two in the morning. So you better have five sets, but opening act, you need 40, 45 minutes of, of really good stuff. And that's a little easier to achieve than to be able to play good for five hours. So you show up at the gig and there's your name on the marquee and you, you come in, you've done the sound check, you know, the, the, the big boys have already been in, done their sound check and they're, they're gone. And now it's your turn. You get up there and you do the sound check. It's pretty rare for these local bands where you're carrying your own PA and you're, you know, you're hauling all your own gear and doing all this stuff. It's, it's, it's a treat to have a light guy and a sound guy and a stage monitor sound guy. You got three people and, and probably the booking person hanging around just kind of helping you make everything just as great as it can be. You basically show up with your instruments and that's it. It's a lot less labor, you know? So you do your sound check and then you're up first because they'll sound check the opening act second. So they don't have to make the changeover. So it's all primed and ready for you to, when they give you the high sign, you walk out and you knock them dead for 30 minutes, 40 minutes or whatever they've asked you to do. But I want to tell you this little story about, uh, that's the good thing. And let me get into the, what's the downside of this. The downside is the money. So many groups want to be doing these sorts of things that, uh, that brings the market price for opening acts way, way, way down. In fact, I'm sure there are bands who would happily pay, pay the promoter for the opportunity to be on stage. But typically the the opening act he's getting paid in notoriety cuz his name's going to be printed in the paper and he's going to be on the marquee he's getting exposure that wonderful exposure which is useful i'm not saying it's not useful he's also has the opportunity to rub shoulders with the big boys backstage and hang around maybe go eat with them and you know rub shoulders with the giants of the music industry he gets that privilege he has the privilege of a wonderful, primed and ready listening audience. That's a good thing. And he also has the market to sell his product. The opening act, can, I, I have seen cases where we were set up as the opening act and we played and then went back to our record table and started selling CDs. I mean, just boom, boom, bang, boom, bam, bam. I mean, good Lord, did, did we bring enough? 
we've sold a lot of CDs. So sometimes uh, in practically all cases, you would make more money selling CDs at the opening act shows than you, than you actually got paid. And of course they often comped you a few beers and maybe, you know, some little snacks in the back and that kind of stuff. So that's the good side. You know, the downside is the low pay and in this, I'm just going to tell this one particular story. Cedar Hill is opening for Doc Watson. And in these days, it was Doc Watson and Jack Lawrence. Jack was traveling with him, playing, well, they both played solos and sang, and it was just a, du a duet. But it was Doc Watson and Jack Lawrence, and sometimes Doc's grandson, Richard, would come along and, and come out and do a, you know, 30 minutes or so and play with them. So this is how they were touring in, in those days. Well, touring, that's how they were playing shows. And we were on the bill to open and we'd, we'd done this quite a long, many times over the years, but I'm just going to talk about one particular case and this is in Atlanta and I will not mention the name of the place, but it was an old theater. And it was, it was a great setup. I don't know how many it would hold, maybe 600, maybe. Had a balcony, you know, and the, um, so it was, it was a big place. But the backstage area was a little bit rudimentary because I don't think it was originally built as a theater for performers. I think it might have been a movie theater. I don't know. But when you went backstage... In one of the corners, you know, just picture a giant rectangular cubicle building with, you know, concrete block walls. And, you know, they got a lot of nice curtains and the place looks really good. But when you go backstage, there's not much back there. You know, there's a big black curtain along the back wall. And there's about three feet of space behind that curtain. And it's just a big giant wall. There's nothing back there. And they got the side curtains and the front curtains and all that kind of stuff. So to make a dressing room, they had basically walled off a corner of, if you're in the audience and you're looking at the right-hand side, there were some little steps that went up there and the uh, stage sound guy, the monitor guy, his gear was set up there. And he went up a couple little steps and there was a little bathroom on the right-hand side and the dressing room. But they only had one of them. So, you know, when the big boys would come to town, that would be their spot. They would, you know, take their cases in there and they would have food and drinks and all this kind of stuff in their little room. And they had their own bathroom. I, I said the bathroom was right before the, the door to their bathroom was inside that dressing room. It was built in a corner. And uh, I, I've only been in there, I think, once. I never went in there. I did a lot of opening acts there, but I, I never went in there because the door would be closed. You know, they're in there, they're hanging out, they come in off the road and they're, they're tired. And they're... So when the opening act would show up, that wasn't where you went. You just stood around. You stood around backstage, you know, behind a curtain and, you know, just waiting for your time to go. In other words, they're not rolling out the red carpet for the opening act. And, you know, the, the act that's in that room might be getting six grand for that show. And you're getting 300 bucks split five ways. So it was a huge difference, you know. 
But nonetheless, you are in, you are backstage. You're on, you know, you're, you're a performer too, but they just didn't have the amenities all spread out for us that particular night. And the, I understand that completely, you know, at festivals, it's sort of like an open air, you know, backstage area where even the funky bands, you know, they, they can walk up and get some Cheetos out of the bowl if they want them, you know? And sometimes they'll have little rooms for the bands to warm up in and stuff. And there's a bathroom available. But so we arrived there and we'd been there for hours because we had to do the sound check. And then we went to eat and we came back and we're just getting ready. And people are starting to file in and we're backstage. And I asked the, uh, uh, like the stage manager guy said, uh, you guys got a bathroom back here? Because otherwise it was going to be hike all the way to the to the front, the lobby area, to the bathroom. I said, you got a back bathroom back here? He's like, yeah, there's one in, you know, in their dressing room, but, you know, you probably shouldn't go in there right now because, you know, they got the door closed. If they open the door, you know, you you can go in there. But, you know, if the door's closed, I, I wouldn't bother them. Okay. So we're standing around. And then the guy says, hey, wait a minute. There is a bathroom. I forgot all about this. And the guy says, go back to the back of the stage where that big black curtain runs all the way across and walk to the opposite corner of the, of the stage area. And there's all kind of ladders and, you know, boxes and all this junk back there. He said, when you go back that corner and then turn left and come up the wall on the left hand side, you're going to see a little staircase. It looks like a fire escape or something. Just go up those stairs, go all the way to the top. And at the top, there's a bathroom. I'm like, hey, cool, thanks. Weird. You know, who would have thought of that? So people are starting to file in now. You can hear talking and, you know, you can hear there's a couple of hundred people out there. They got the curtain closed, but you can, you can sense the audience and that's, that's, that's fun. It always kind of builds excitement. So I walk across and I see these, it's like stairs going up the wall. And they got like two by four hand railings on it and stuff. Climb to the top and there's a little, there's a little kind of landing area. And I'm thinking, well, this must've been, you know, where they would like do something when they're putting on plays or something. This is like a little upper loft area. And sure enough, there's a door. And I'm, I'm walking from the back corner of the stage toward the front, toward the audience. And I'm at the top of the stairs. I'm now, you know, 15 feet above the stage, 20 feet, maybe way up above the stage. And if you were sitting in the audience point to your upper left, that's, that's, you know, where all them speakers and lights and all that stuff are. So at the top of the stairs, there is a door doesn't have any writing on it. Well, this must be the bathroom. Open the door. Sure enough, there's a toilet. There's a toilet sitting there. I go in there and I close the door. And I realized that the wall, the wall facing the audience is not a wall. It's a curtain. And I'm just standing there looking out. And because the, the, the lights in the auditorium are up, but the lights backstage are down, you can see through the curtain. I can see out there. I can see like there's a couple of hundred people sitting out there and there's nothing between me and them, but this cloth. And I, I was like, you know what? Never mind. 
I don't really have to go right now. It was funny because, I mean, I can hear people in the first row having conversations. I don't think they want to hear me flushing the toilet. It's just weird, you know. I came back down. It's like, well, okay. That's that's sometimes the kind of amenities you get backstage when you're a big-time star. <laughs> anyway, you know, I wonder sometimes if... if uh, you know, I doubt there was anybody in the audience who would have ever thought that just up to their upper left, right behind that curtain, there's some guy sitting on the commode. Anyway, it wasn't me that night, but I'm sure there have been people that have done it. Now, talking all about the, the glories of being an opening act. You know, that's kind of fun. Thinking back on it, we've opened, well, during the Cedar Hill days, we opened for a lot of people. Earl Scruggs, Review. I'm going to tell you, this is kind of funny. I had never met Earl Scruggs until the day that we opened for Earl Scruggs. And at that particular place where we were playing, they didn't even have bathrooms backstage. The only bathrooms in the place were the public bathrooms way at the front by the entrance doors, you know, in the lobby area. And I come in. And actually, this this occurred not, we weren't opening. I had bought a ticket to the show. I went to see Earl Scruggs Review. So this is a couple of years before that. I never met Earl Scruggs in my life. I'd been to a couple of their shows. Uh, because, you know, as a bluegrasser, I got to see Earl. But, you know. Flat and Scruggs had broken up and there was this Earl Scruggs review, which I was sort of kind of into. I did, I, not really. I just wanted to see Earl pick. And of course, Josh Graves was playing with them in those days. And so was Vassar. So it was really cool. And it was cool when they would play a tune like Reuben or something, you know, but a lot of the rest of that stuff, those Dylan tunes and all that, I was not into. But nonetheless, this is the only way you can go see Earl. So I would get a ticket and go see Earl Scruggs review at the great Southeast music hall in Atlanta and saw them at the two different locations because they moved that place. So anyway, my first meeting with Earl Scruggs was this, I got a ticket and when they opened the doors and they let us in, I'm standing around the lobby and I'd been standing in that line for so long that I need to go use the bathroom. So where's the men's room? Oh, it's right over here to the left. And I go through the door and, you know, there's somebody washing their hands at the sink and there's two or three people lined up and, you know, it's a different stalls. And there's a guy standing there at the, uh, one of those wall mounted urinal things. And well, just, you know, get in line behind this fella here. And I'm just standing there waiting my turn. And the guy finishes and turns around. And it's Earl Scruggs. I'm face to face with Earl. And I just said, hey, Earl, how, how you doing, Earl? And stepped aside as he walked over to the sink, washed his hands and walked out. And that was my first meeting with Earl Scruggs. Fascinating stuff, isn't it? Now, what I want to tell you about the, the story I really want to tell you right here. And then I'm just going to close this. I don't know why I'm in such a strange mood. I don't feel like sitting here talking about practice techniques or, you know, 
you know, comparing electronic tuners to tuning by ear, any of this stuff that I'm sure could help your playing. I just kind of in a strange mood this morning and thought I'd just tell you some, some kind of weird stories. Well, one of the things, uh, this is going to be a, this is the final story. And it just shows that once again, from the audience's point of view, what they see is not, is not the reality of the situation. You know, they don't see you trying to find a place to park. They don't see you trying to, you know, get your gear up the, uh, uh, through the kitchen and around all these, you know, carts full of dirty dishes and the slippery floors. You're coming through the kitchen and you're trying to work your way to the ballroom, you know, through the back. They don't see any of this stuff. And then, you know, they're coming in the front door and they're getting their name badges and they're coming in and it's this particular gig was the, it was called the GWPCA and they had an annual convention every year. It was the Georgia water, Georgia water and wastewater pollution control association or something like that. Basically these were, you know, the, um, the managers and supervisors and people like that who run your local, uh, water purification systems, water treatment plants and wastewater treatment plants. So these people, they have their convention and they have their trade show and they look at, you know, valves and, you know, chlorinators and, you know, they get the brochures and all this kind of stuff. And they have the happy hour and they have the big dinner and the banquet and the awards night. And, you know, I remember this particular outfit, they had a, a contest each year where each, you know, all the local communities in Georgia, the, the water treatment operators would send in a sample of their water and then they would have a taste testing and they would award like Calhoun, Georgia got first place for the best tasting drinking water, you know? And so they'd be getting their trophies and all this kind of stuff. So anyway, Cedar Hill was booked to perform at this thing, probably making a thousand bucks, something like that. And we've are, you know, we're, we're arriving way before they come into the room. You know, they're in meetings and this and that. And, you know, maybe seven o'clock, they're going to start with the banquet. So, you know, 530, we're at the back dock of some hotel in downtown Atlanta, you know, forwarding gear, lugging gear with hand trucks and getting the big Tapco speakers in there and all the monitors and the mic stands and the board and the amps and, you know, making return back and forth trips and this kind of stuff. Well, I made a trip from the stage. I had maybe carted, you know, some hand trucks with some gear on it to the stage. And I was coming back toward the trailer, weaving my way through the kitchen and then out onto the back dock. And the trailer was just, you know, a typical, like a little five by eight utility trailer. Well, it was a lot lower than the, than the dock. Those docks were built for, you know, big delivery trucks, you know. So I hop off the dock. I just kind of, you know, jumped from the dock down to the, to the concrete floor down there so I could heave hose some more stuff up. Well, as I jumped the back end of my pants caught on something, you know, they have them, those rubber blocks. So when the guy's back in the truck up, he don't bust the concrete out and stuff. They got these rubber blocks of, you know, this really hard rubber that's, that's bolted onto the dock. Well, there's a little iron frame around that. And, uh, well, anyway, the back end of my pants caught that as I, 
jumped off the stage and it ripped a giant hole up the back end of my pants. About six inches just tore the back end out of my pants. What am I going to do? We're going to perform. I don't have any other pants with me. This is it. I'm wearing my gig clothes, you know? Oh man. So I'm digging around in the toolbox, trying to find some duct tape, stapler, anything I can find. You know, I don't even know if a sewing kit would have helped me at this stage. I'm like, I'm showing Bob. I mean, like, what am I going to do, man? He's like, ah, dude, I don't know. Go get some duct tape and see if you can, you know. So I, I go to the, to the men's room, find a men's room somewhere and pull my drawers down and I'm layering on like, you know, eight giant pieces of duct tape, trying to tape the back end of my pants together. And I might've had a staple gun even. I don't even know what I did. I'm like, oh man, this is bad. Well, it gets time to go on. And I can tell this instant pants repair is not working. Now from the front, you would never know it. You would never know it. But if you looked at me from the back, you'd think I'd just been, you know, chased by a bear or something. And he almost got me. I mean, the tail end of my drawers was just torn up. <laughs> well, it's time to go on boys. And they're all kind of getting a big kick out of this. Cause they're just glad it wasn't them. We walked on, we did our show. I never turned around. I faced the audience the whole night. I never showed my backside. And I, you know, they always say you should never turn your back on the audience. Well, by God that night, I did not turn my back on the audience. I would, you know, definitely move around the stage, always facing forward. It was talk about a weird, uncomfortable situation. Uh, you know, but it was a lot of times when you're playing too, you get kind of, you get warm, you know, you, you heat up just from the output, you know, you're doing a lot of activity up there and the hot lights are burning down on you. We didn't have LEDs back then, pure incandescent cans, you know, and you get kind of warm. I, I never got warm that night. I was fully air conditioned. Anyway, that's some of the weird stuff that happens to you when you're out there gigging. Y'all have a wonderful week, and I will talk to you in the next podcast. And please visit the website, bradleylaird.com. As you know, this podcast is sponsored by me, bradleylaird.com. Go over there and scope out all the free instructional materials. And, you know, if you got a little money to spare, browse around some of the wonderful offerings that I have there scattered throughout the site.